I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Lisa Gornick, author of Anna Turns. Nine years have passed since Anna Cole had sex with her pot-addicted anesthesiologist husband, seven since she began an affair with a gonzo journalist. She's gratified by her work as a book doula, but burdened by her belief that she need always be on call. Her elderly mother's birthday greeting is an inflation-adjusted calculation of the cost of raising Anna in a mice-infected or infested house. Her brother has hijacked the will of their recently deceased architect father. Her adult child is changing rapidly before her eyes, and her best friend advocates for the truth in lies. Anna sees that she can no longer postpone making peace with her past or confronting her present, and so turns toward a vision of what she wants next in this blink of a life. Hailed by NPR is one of the most perceptive, compassionate writers of fiction in America. Lisa Gornick brings us this engaging novel. Her essays and her stories have appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, Real Simple, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Lisa, nice to have you on. Oh, thank you for that lovely introduction, Catherine. I'm very happy to be here today. Well, I did miss a piece. You have a PhD in psychology. You're a psychoanalyst. You graduated from Yale. I have to add those pieces because my question is, uh, with all these, uh, well, obviously, well-deserved accolades, um, how do you respond to all of this? How do you, I mean, that piece I just, or that, uh, uh, what what I just mentioned about NPR, one of the most perceptive, and I'm going to say it again, compassionate writers of fiction in America, that's like, wow. Uh, how does that make you feel? I mean, those are really heady statements. Oh, well, I, that was sort of a dream come true <laughs> when, when that review landed. And uh, they don't come always. And um, I think as writers, we're always very grateful when we feel appreciated, when it seems like another person understands what we're trying to do, you know, what we're aiming at with our work, which is, of course, what we hope will happen with our readers. So what, in this particular book, because you've written other books, obviously, what is the aim of this is? What did you want to do? And NPR, actually, as you say, they got it. So what did they get? And Well, so, of course, that was not for this book. That was for an earlier book. Um, this book is published it has a, on it's coming November, out in November 7th, right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very interesting... Uh, I don't think that most novelists start out with an idea in mind of what they're trying to say. For me, I started out with a glimmer of the character and a couple of different situations. But what was interesting to me is I actually had the title very early on, and it wasn't until recently that I understood what the title really means, which is that this is a book about what a woman turns away from on her 60th birthday, what she turns back to, what she turns around, and ultimately what she turns towards. And that was really what I was trying to get at, is that that moment of transition at this time of life, which is sort of underrepresented in, in literature. Um, and, you know, we can talk about some of the things that it is that she's trying to turn away from and with some of the things she's, she's turning 
towards, but if I were to um, sum it up in a couple of sentences, I would say she's trying to turn towards generosity over fairness, which is a really difficult thing to do, I'm sure you know, and we, we all know. And she's also trying to turn away from a certain kind of ossified views of other people, which have left her mired in either resentment or feeling crushed, as she does when she gets that email from her mother, you know, in the first minutes of her 60th birthday with the accounting of what it costs to to raise her. And in which she has this moment when she thinks, yeah, that feels really crappy, but What's really terrible is that I'm still letting myself be crushed by this. This is an 88-year-old woman. I'm 60 years old. It's really time for me to get over that and to take control of my own life and be the sentry to my own emotional world. So, uh, But, you know, I'm even at 60, at. I'm trying to think, even at 60, uh, many of us... <laughs> And many of my friends and colleagues are still struggle with this. That you know, sixty. Wow, sometimes it doesn't happen with people if they live long enough till they're in their seventies or even eighties to say, "Why am I still upset about what my mother has to say?" Or, "Why am I?" Yeah, and all the things that I just mentioned that the the uh, the character in your book uh, is 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 dealing with. Why was sixty a magic number for her? Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's a magic number. I rather she sees it as, um, as I say in the, the very last sentence of the book, where she's aware that there's just a blink of life, and she's entering what seems like maybe the last third of her life, and that it's just time. It's liberating to let go of feeling resentment, of feeling crushed by people who are motivated by their own internal pain. And so Anna has this vision that she can enter this last third of her life and have greater joy and bring greater joy to others. So, um, yes, it, you know, it, it could have happened when she was 30. That would have been great. She would have had two-thirds of her life in, yeah. that, in that way. But it's better, better late than never, right? Yeah. And I'm just wondering how late it really is. Uh, I'm thinking you say it could have happened in 30. Usually it doesn't happen in 30, uh, at least in my experience or with the people I know and friends and family. It doesn't. I mean, this seems more, um, this character, it seems much more realistic happening at 60. And also given, as you say, she might have a third of her life to live longer, which people are living longer and really thinking about that. Um, how about you in terms of your own? I mean, where does this fit into like how you, and I always, I know this is a, a novel, not a memoir, but still does some of the characters and some of the issues, are they yours? Are your issues? Well, you know, I, I just uh, conducted a roundtable for Lit Hub with um, four other really wonderful writers, Elizabeth Strout and Julia Alvarez, Fiona Davis, and Andrea Lee. And we're all women, quote, of a certain age, uh, though Andrea objected, and I think rightly so, to that term. But we're writing about characters of a certain age, and I, and I do think that it's hard to really 
grasp and understand what this phase of life is like until until you're there. And a lot of people write about younger characters, and I certainly have, and all of those writers have too. But to write about this particular age, I think you have to get there, where you have um, adult children already, as I do. Um, I still I have a 95-year-old mother. It's not autobiographical. This is a piece of fiction. It's not a memoir. But I emotionally um, know in myself and through the people I'm intimate with the the issues that I'm, I'm writing about. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered the question. <laughs> no, you like did answer the question. I think the example you just gave is, you know, this uh, or this discussion with the women that you're with. I, I think I went to school with Julia Alvarez a couple of years behind me at Abbott Academy Andover. I'm not, I, yeah. Um, well, she just wrote a beautiful book. Well, I've not just, it's a few years ago. It's called Afterlife, and it um, involves a, a woman who's been recently widowed, and um, she's at this stage of life of um, coming to terms with what's important to her. So, and that's certainly true for Elizabeth Strout with with her last two books and her Lucy Barton series with Andrea Lee um, and Fiona Davis, too. We've all written about women of this age. But what I meant to uh, add there was that the idea for that roundtable came to me when I was rereading Mrs. Dalloway, and I was shocked to realize that she's only 51 in that book. And in a passage to India, uh, the protagonist there is also probably only in her 50s. And I think it's it's only been this last century that we've had this extended life so that we now have this new life phase to to think about. You know, people didn't live beyond 60, uh, very many of them, 100 years ago. Yeah, well, you just mentioned that you're, what, your mother's 95, 93? Yeah, 95, yes. So... Exactly, exactly. So we... That's right. So uh, we have this kind of bonus decade with our uh, with our elderly parents that many people did not have before. Yeah, I, that's true. And it's not just that we, you know, that we stay alive and that we're fairly healthy, but we are very healthy, or we can be very. Many people are very healthy, very active, and they're active. And there are expectations that come along with that. I think maybe you could comment on that. I mean, expectations. I have a hundred-year-old mother who said, you know, wow. the expectations for my mother. All she had to do was sit in a rocking chair, or not literally, but you know, sit in the living room, and and uh, there were really no expectations that she should do anything. But you know, at eighty-five or ninety, uh, my mother. Uh, felt or feels that there were expectations for her. You got to do something there, you know, there's, or what are you going to do? So that's different too. I think don't, you know, the, the people who surround us expect us to do something different or to evolve. Well, it's a great opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm rereading right now um, Fellowship Point by my friend Alice Dark, which is about an 80-year-old woman who has a very powerful mission uh, that she wants to make sure she, she secures for a land trust. Um, a piece of land is very precious to her. So uh, 
I'm certainly looking forward to living very robustly in, in my 80s and hopefully my 90s, too. Well, in terms of your own family, you live in New York City. I think it's with I your do. family, right? And you have grown-up children. I do, yes. Yeah. What do you th- I do. Yeah. What do you think their expectations are for you? Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and, uh, um, well, I I just published a piece for Next Avenue um, about this new situation, relatively new situation. People have talked for a long time about the sandwich generation, and there they were referring to women mostly in their 40s and early 50s who still had young school-age children and were facing being sandwiched between their needs and the needs of their becoming elderly parents. And I was at a, a dinner where I was with three other writers, and we all had mothers who were around 90 and adult children who we were still quite involved with. So I think there's been such a generational shift in what young people in their 20s and even 30s are, how much more involved they still are with their parents than I was or anyone in my cohort were at that age. So that, in a strange way, it's sort of shifted. We're, we're sandwiched now between our young adult children who are not fully independent and uh, our quite elderly parents who are definitely not fully independent any longer. Um, so I don't know what my kids think <laughs> they have ahead of them. I, I, I think they're presuming that I better well be um, pretty autonomous for the next 25 years or so. <laughs> you better be autonomous and stick around. Well, then you also have yeah. the grandchildren who are, <laughs> that's another generation that you are around for and available or, you know, there's the potential to be available. So that's, you know, that as I, it really, it adds another response could add another responsibility. It does. Yeah. It does, yes. And I've been hearing, I don't have grandchildren yet, but I've been hearing from my friends who have grandchildren that apparently um, the uh, grandparents now are expected to be a great deal more involved in the caregiving of, of grandchildren. A lot of my friends spend a lot of time taking care of grandkids joy- joyfully, but quite differently than was the case when they had their own children. Right. Let's talk about also your, because I'm really interested in your, well, you have a doctorate in clinical psychology, which you got at Yale, um, and at the same time a graduate of the writing program at NYU, and your psychoanalytic training at Columbia. And so you are on the faculty now at Columbia? I am, yes. Well, I'm on the voluntary faculty for the Psychoanalytic Institute, so um, which which is how psychiatry departments have supervisors and and so on. But I'm I'm quite active there right now. I'm involved in the um, public outreach program in which we try to bring into conversation analysts with thinkers in other disciplines. So it's been very enriching. When you say public outreach program, what I mean exactly, what is that? You know, psychoanalysts. Uh, you know, most people think if if you if one gut is uh, becomes psychoanalyzed, you know, it's very erudite. I don't know, esoteric. It's very it's out of the reach of most people. And well, you know, Freud was really a philosopher, and in some 
way as a political philosopher, too. There's civilization, there's discontent. And we're hosting um, in a December uh, Brett Stevens, who's a New York Times reporter and an historian from NYU and an analyst who all talk together about authoritarianism. So there are psychological roots, you know, obviously, as well as political roots. So we're trying to integrate the psychological understanding with historical, political, philosophical understandings and in, a, uh, in an online Zoom webinar kind of forum. So uh, that's really my interest right now. I'm not doing clinical practice any longer. But okay, so this is going to be issues. It's it's available to most people. The webinar. Yeah, exactly. anybody anybody can sign up for it. I, we can put the link in in the program notes if you'd like. And oh, no, that's great. Yeah. It. So what else are you going to do? That <laughs> I mean, you're so involved. In, <laughs> well, that's yeah, the next, I mean, that, that's yeah. the next program that we have. Um, but I'm really interested, for instance, in issues about silencing, which I, I know you're a social worker, Catherine. Did you do yes. clinical work at one point also? I did clinical work, and a lot of my clinical work uh, was in a uh, major rehab hospital, so I have done a lot of hospital social work, those kinds of things, rehabilitation for everything, actually, um, and that's been my experience, uh, yeah, hospital social work. Or, right, or, yeah. right. Drugs, um, alcohol, all cut. You know. Yes, yes. Um, so you know, silencing is um, a very critical issue in people's development. When children feel silenced, when there are family secrets, and then of course we're living right now in a world where there's a great deal of silencing. I mean, certainly we're experiencing it this very moment when there's a lot of cancel culture for people expressing views that are not considered, um, other people aren't open to hearing. And as a writer, too, um, it's a very hot-button issue because there are questions about whether or not it's okay for um, a writer to write outside their identity group. You know, for me, with this novel, um, I'm writing about a transitioning adult child. Now, I didn't feel like I could write about it from the point of view of the transitioning person, but I did write about it from the point of view of their mother and what their mother, the the transition their mother has to go through in order to be there for their child. So those are the kind of interdisciplinary issues that I'm interested in. And in Anna Turns also, you know, I I look at the... um, the theme of trying to understand the world through other people's point of view, which is why there are chapters from other points of view, but there's also this iconic story in it about the dynamiting of the Bamiyan Buddhas, which seems like such a horrific act, and it certainly was a a horrific act, but uh, there's a character, uh, Anna's lover, in it who is really vilified because he wants to bring to the world the point of view of the person, the Taliban person who ordered that bombing, not to condone it, but to just say, let's try to enlarge our understanding. What does it do for us to, to not understand things through other points of view? And what is so that? I don't know. This is, a, I guess, just another piece of what we're talking about in terms of silencing, just... 
um, from a practical point of view, or for, uh, what, what about the banning books? Uh, uh, where where does this all fit in? Well, yeah, that's that's just another way of silencing people, silencing writers, silencing history, and you know. Uh, I can't see any reason to ever ban a book. any book. I can certainly understand that not every book is, you know, appropriate for elementary age children, but um, banning books is a whole other thing. And what, so what do you think, because you are the expert, uh, this banning books, and, and let's say most of that happens or much of that happens in, in, uh, in the, in the, red states as opposed to the blue states what do you right. think the out yeah what is the outcome going to be well first for the really for those in the in the red states um or for the children well from what i've i'm, I'm hardly expert on this though i know that the authors guild and pen america have been really involved in this particularly the authors guild and which i'm the member of um but from what I read, it's very, very painful, particularly for LGBTQ teens who really depend on those books to try to see themselves and sometimes to, before they're ready to talk to other people, to start to get comfortable with their own feelings and, and the range of ways that people can live in the world. So it's it's actually really harmful. And then, of course, to to ban history, to ban the actual telling of historical facts. I think that dovetails into what we were talking about, about authoritarianism, to not allow a multiplicity of perspectives on understanding our history. I'm sure the history that you and I learned in uh, middle school is, you know, it left out huge amounts of the American story. And, uh, and I, I maybe this is asking the question again, but I think about these kids who are going to grow up with, uh, well, I, and some of the science, they, they're not really learning science. They're just learning, this, you know, I don't know what they're learning, but it's not science necessarily. That's not allowed. Uh, these kids who are LGBTQ kids, uh, they, they don't, the, they don't have an understanding of, um, and, and there are some great books actually that I have had the author's on my show, children's right. books about different families and different, which are great. And I assume those books are, I, I don't know, uh, will be banned. Um, but they're, these kids are going to be in high school and perhaps not even get to college. I mean, it, it's because of you know where they come from. I, I don't know. I'm always kind of looking down the line, trying to get a feel for it's um, within the next 10 years, like what will happen to them. Yeah, no, it's a very it's a very scary time when science has become so politicized. Though I guess that's not really new when you think about, you know, the Middle Ages when when scientists were uh burnt at the stake for some of their research it was considered heretical. I mean it's all it's this is this is not new, but it's definitely not progressive. It's retrograde. Yep. No, no question about it. Well, um, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, but we have about two minutes left. So, oh. yes, and I know we, we've talked about some of the things you're doing. I know the book is coming out in November. So, give us 
website and or websites we can go to about your book and about what you are doing as well. Okay. So um, I have an author website, uh, lisagornickauthor.com, and if you go to the events page, I'm doing um, a book tour on the uh, East Coast, and I'd love to see any of your listeners, um, though by the time this airs, some of those events will have already happened, but I will be doing um, a virtual event that I think will fall after this airs uh, on December 5th with the amazing Alice McDermott, um, and that's being sponsored by Book Passage, the great bookstore in the Bay Area. And if you go to their website uh, for Book Passage, you can sign up for that free virtual event, and I'd love to have any of your uh, listeners join us there. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I want to obviously I want to mention the book again, Anna Turns, and I've been talking to the author Lisa Gornick. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Catherine, for having me on. I I very much enjoyed our wide-ranging discussion today. I did, too. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 